I really get annoyed when people make dumb arguments like pronatalism is racist or pronatalism is anti-environmental. Mm. When people make anti-natalism for this argument, I'm like, depending on your priors, it may be true. There's anti-natalists that I respect and was like, the ones who are like, no, I don't think that we should painlessly kill everyone. I generally think that there really is no good logical way to get to that perspective. The ones mm -hmm. who bite the bullet on that and say, yes, we should painlessly kill everyone. I'm like, from my cultural perspective, you yeah, are that's... super evil and a threat to my family. But logically consistent. But logically consistent. And I can respect a person who's logically consistent when it causes them to be shamed by society. That's what we do. That's what this channel's all about. So in a way, I really respect that aspect of the antinatalist movement. Would you like to know more? Hello, gorgeous. Hello. I am excited for today's talk. So in the world of pronatalism, there are a lot of dumb reasons that people don't agree with it or argue against it. Some examples are, but the environment. Well, if you selectively remove everyone from the population that cares about the environment, that's going to cause much bigger environmental problems down the line. This is particularly pointed when you consider the fact that if humanity doesn't survive, because many environmentalists will be like, we don't need humans anymore. Look at all the damage they've done. And it's like, well, if you get rid of humans, if you, if, you, if you get rid of humans, there is no other species on this planet that can colonize other planets. And presumably what you're optimizing for is biodiversity, not biostasis, not maintaining the Earth exactly as it was when humans first emerged. And if you're optimizing for biodiversity, intrinsically, whichever species can best seed new biomes on other planets is long-term going to increase biodiversity the most because we can develop new biomes that are just as rich as Earth on a thousand different planets. So you lose the entire biology game if humanity goes extinct right now. It doesn't look like there's going to be enough time if humanity goes extinct and you look at the life cycle and how long it took for humans to, to rise for another intelligent species to rise afterwards and then leave the planet. We're just looking probabilistically. Before the sun expands and kills all life that we know for sure exists in the universe. So kind of humans are, are stuck with this one, even if they are a bit of a shitty species. I'm not going to argue there. But two, you're also going to have the effects of, because the way people vote, has a heritable component. This has been shown in lots of studies. If, if environmentalists specifically don't have kids, that's going to cause people to become less environmentalists over time. And even if you don't believe that any of this has a heritable component, well, still culturally, that means the cultural groups that don't care about the environment are going to outcompete you in the long run. And that the only way you can survive is by converting people out of those cultural groups. Yet long-term studies, as we've mentioned many times, if you look at people like Amish, fewer and fewer people deconvert from the, the, the group every year depending on how long a family's been in, in the Amish community, because cultures adapt. If, if another culture is primarily surviving by taking their members, then they're going to adapt to this over time and eventually become resistant. That's just how evolution works. And evolution works at the cultural level as well as the, the level of, of people. People might say, oh, it's racist. Really? Like in, in the U.S. right now, we are importing people mostly from Latin America. And yet collectively, South America, Central America, and the Caribbean are below repopulation rate. In... And this was in 2019 by the UN's own statistics, which famously inflates this stuff. 
So we're we're draining from a evaporating pool. This isn't just a white person problem. In fact, it's not even really a white person problem at all. If you look at prosperous countries, the population groups that are most resistant to fertility collapse are generally white populations, conservative Christians and conservative Jews. The groups that are most affected by it are generally East Asian and South Asian populations or native populations. So small native groups are really affected by it as well. So like in the US, you're looking like Native American groups and stuff like that. So again, it's more like if white people did nothing about demographic collapse right now, they would almost certainly, quote unquote, win in the long run. As such, if one defines racism as supporting a cause that promotes white interests, then it is actually people who are not raising the flag about pronatalism and population collapse that are taking the racist position because covering this up at the problem disproportionately benefits white groups. So a third argument against prenatalism is that it involves removing women's reproductive rights because many anti-abortion groups are also framing themselves as pronatalist. And people see, for example, the reversal of Roe v. Wade and the removal of options to, to have abortions in many states as a direct affront to that. And because they connect the anti-abortion stance with pronatalism, they're basically like, oh, pronatalism, therefore no more female reproductive rights. And they also start to turn to themes like A Handmaid's Tale and, oh, you're going to force women to have kids. That's the only way, which is is super inaccurate. Really, the only thing that you really should be thinking about if you're concerned about a future in which women's rights and reproductive choice are not supported is, oh my gosh, how do we make sure that in the future there are people that exist that support reproductive choice and that support feminism? And if all feminist groups and if all groups that support reproductive choice fail to reproduce and pass on their culture and you can't, you can't really sustainably pass on a culture only by converting people over generations. It just doesn't work. And we can get into that. You oh. are going to end up without those values supported. So basically the, the future of, of feminism, the future of reproductive rights depends on pronatalism or at least some pronatalism within those groups. More specifically, if it turns out the only way to get people to have kids is to take away their rights, or it turns out that nobody finds out a way to get people to voluntarily want to have kids, mm -hmm. well, then the cultural groups that survive are going to be the ones that take away people's rights. Right. And we're already seeing tendencies towards this in some of China's recent policies. So buckle up, because it's going to get worse in a lot of countries that are further along on demographic collapse than we are in the US. But- the most interesting argument I find when I'm at it looking at an argument and I'm like, this is actually a sophisticated argument that makes sense depending on the priors you're coming into the conversation with and depending on your proclivities and your cultural group, that is the David Benatar negative utilitarian argument. Well, and what we really respect about it, I would say, is that it, it is logically consistent. It it makes it makes sense. Whereas we had rebuttals to all the other ones with, with antinatalist arguments that are well-made. We're just like, yeah, per your framing, per your values, per what you're optimizing for, mm -hmm. you are correct in being antinatalist. We'll get into the structure of the argument. We'll start with the weaker aspects of the argument first and then get into the stronger aspects. I don't think we're like straw manning it because we start with the, the weakest aspects of the argument, but it's the way it's typically laid out is starting with the weaker aspects of the argument. So one of the really big points antinatalists start with, or I see starting with, is that life is a net negative. So life is, is mostly suffering, more suffering than, than pleasure or neutral experiences. Or at least oh. that negative emotions are felt more acutely than positive emotions. Mm -hmm. And this is a, an 
accurate statement. The, 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 I, I would the, the strong negative emotions I feel like having a finger chopped off. There is no positive emotional equivalent to that. In fact, I would say when people are talking about the the biggest positive emotions in their life, like the day I gave birth to my child or my wedding, mm. they're not actually flooded with positive emotions on those days. What they actually mean is more like that was a milestone that was important to my self-identity. They're meaningful achievements. Yeah. And and so one, one argument that anti-ambulists make, therefore, because people usually their rebuttal to that is, oh, no, my life is definitely more positive than it is negative. And they may point to things like that. It's, oh, yeah, you gave birth and you thought that that was a positive experience. Your pain was at like nine out of 10. Like, why are you saying that? You're crazy. Yeah, there's no way. And and I, I think that here, the problem that antinatalists run into is that people will say, well, even if that's the case, I still like my life and I'm glad I exist. Mm -hmm. I would rather exist than not exist, right? The majority of people do not, in fact, wish they were never born. And so then it, it, it starts saying, oh, you have positivity bias, which is the tendency for people to remember positive emotions with more clarity than negative emotions. But the problem is, is that this argument conveniently ignores that while they are right, that humans remember positive events more accurately than negative ones, given their intrinsic negativity bias, people will spend more time focused on negative things than positive things. This has been measured in test subjects who focus more on negative pictures when given a choice to choose between two and blinking more when given negative words than positive ones, with eye blinks being tied to cognitive processing. So essentially, we process negative stuff more than we process positive stuff. And this has been seen repeatedly in research. And I think that I do see this within the, the anti-natalist community is, is, is this negativity bias blinding them. But then the argument they'll make is they'll say, well, people can adapt to anything. Do you want to go into this argument, Simone? So there's also the anti-natalist argument that people will adjust to their suffering no matter what it is. For example, there are people living in extreme destitution, people who are starving, who are suffering, who have untreated open wounds or terrible pain, and they're living their lives. And, and they're also, if, if, if they asked, they would probably say that they would want to continue living. They wouldn't want to not live anymore. They're still happy to stay alive. And that that makes humans in general unreliable narrators when it comes to judging whether or not their lives are a net positive experience or a net suffering experience. And so this argument, I love what it's actually saying. It's like me as a person in a developed country, but in a corrupt culture that can't motivate my existence through any means other than pleasure. I look at people in the developed world who are happy with their lives and I can't imagine how that's possible. Me, snooty, new atheist kid. Well, I just, they shouldn't be happy with their life and they're wrong to be happy with their life and they're wrong to be glad to be alive even if they experience more suffering than positive emotions. <laughs> It's 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 wild. Um, and it's wild how gaslighty this whole line of argument is, too. It's you are wrong. You should doubt your own mind as to whether or not you are glad that you exist. And I can see why this appeals to people who already have this intuition that they would rather not exist or have this sort of morose view of the world, which I think is very common within certain sectors of like academic society right now. Mm. But I think it's, it's not common among a lot of the more religiously conservative communities I know. They're generally pretty happy with their lives. That, that is interesting. I, I do, and this is a little bit of a, a diversion, but I do get the impression that the anti-natalist community does is I would say actually is corrupted by a lot of depression because I don't, I think that someone who's anti-natalist because they're deeply depressed isn't necessarily anti-natalist for the right reasons, right? I think David Benatar, who has come to this conclusion through logical reasoning. Actually, there's evidence he didn't. 
Oh, really? He says oh, okay. that long before he was an anti-natalist, he never wanted kids. And there's an interview where we can get this quote. Well, actually, one of my arguments is I think that he actually is just arguing for the lifestyle he wanted to live anyway. And well, I, that, I, I mean, that, okay, I will, I will say that that is some anti-natalists, but I do think that there are other anti-natalists that have in a logically consistent manner, uh, manner not because they are depressed, but rather because they've reasoned through this. Well, I would still say that there is subset of antinatalists who have come to this conclusion, not because of their proclivities, but because they are actually antinatalists. You could almost say it's, it's kind of like a weird microcosm for Buddhism. I think there are many Buddhists who have had great lives, who have experienced the joy of life, like Prince Siddhartha, right? He, he lived in paradise and then he saw the suffering in the world. He, he discovered what exist, existed and then sought to, through enlightenment, break the cycle to end the suffering, right? Well, this is something I really want to point out here. If you talk to antinatalist communities, one argument they'll always say is I really wouldn't want to kill myself. And we'll get to why they argue this. But they'll also say, my life is generally happy. People assume because I'm an antinatalist, I'm not a happy person. You, you hear this throughout antinatalist arguments when they're interviewed. Go on to the antinatalist subreddit. Watch antinatalist YouTubers. These are not happy people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This actually came up on Twitter. There's there's one anti-natalist account that sometimes snipes at us a little bit or, or tries to argue against us, which I understand because we're like at the opposite end of the ideological spectrum. But they're often like, oh, well, why would you why would you have kids bring more life into the world when you could just adopt people? There are so many suffering children who should be adopted. And other people have asked them in these threads, well, why aren't why aren't you adopting people? Why aren't anti-natalists adopting people? And this person on Twitter has actually said, well, I, I would adopt people if I felt like I would be able to take care of them, but I'm really depressed. And there are a lot of really depressed people in the antinatalist community. So I think this is a known quantity and, and it is it is a problem. But I think if we're going to try to steel man this to the best of our ability and look at antinatalism in good faith, we have to try to at least separate out the the subset of this community that is here just because they are deeply depressed while still acknowledging that that is a subset of the community that does bring in a lot of bias right well, well what i would say is well i think that a lot of their arguments are kind of abusey sounding to me i have associated them with a lot of like, abusey cults i do think that the core point that they are making is a valid point that you experience negative emotions more acutely in your life than positive emotions. And if the only reason to live is positive emotions, then without genetically engineering people, that might make sense. Now, here's another place where this argument falls apart that we don't discuss on our exploration of this in the book, is that long-term, if you're like, okay, I'm just trying to maximize happiness in the universe, which mm -hmm. often they aren't, but let's say that that's what they're trying to do, right? They, they actually don't believe happiness has any value and we'll get into why they don't believe that happiness has any value. But if they did still agree that it had value, well, then in the future, humans, there's, there's even some projects like you go to eugenics.org. Now, we are really against eugenics. But the funny thing is, is, is what is eugenics.org doing? It's doing a fundamentally anti-natalist thing, which is trying to engineer people to feel fewer negative emotions. Oh, wow. Which you could conceivably do. And 500, 1,000 years from now, when genetic technology becomes more uh, usable to people, as, as, as technology increases, as the ability to know our own nervous system and basically cancel out negative emotions, do I think that we will eventually get to a place as a species where humans will feel essentially no negative emotions that they don't want to? Yeah, I think a, fra a fraction of our species will definitely get there. Now, how much of our species wants to opt into that is dependent on many factors. But if your goal is time independent to increase positive emotions, then what you want to do is 
keep humans around until they can get to this stage where the positive emotions can outweigh the negative emotions. Mm. Essentially, human history and potentially even the history of life could be seen as a spectrum where earlier in that history, things like suffering were much more common. If you look at humans that lived a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, suffering was much more common for them. And in the future, a thousand years from now, two thousand years from now, suffering is going to be much less common to the point where the average human will essentially feel mostly just positive emotional states, meaning that if you want to ensure that the net balance of emotions across all of time and history is negative, then you need to end the cycle before humans get there. You need to take the antinatalist position. Whereas if you keep the cycle of civilization going and ensure that we have a, a prosperous, pluralist future civilization where people still have individual agency to choose to engage with this type of technology, you're essentially ensuring that the balance of positive emotions ends in the positive across all of time with the understanding that you just happen to be one of the people living in a time that has to suffer so future people don't have to deal with this. As our ancestors did before us, it lived lives of much more suffering than we have. But none of this is really relevant to us because... We just don't think emotions matter that much. No, is a life meaningful? The classic, if your brain in a take and you're just filled with like positive emotions, does that like actually matter? No, the, the positive emotions you feel are things you feel because your ancestors who felt them had more surviving offspring. The negative mm. emotions you feel are things you feel because your ancestors who had them had fewer surviving offspring. They just, I, I find it very hard to philosophically argue that there's some deeper meaning behind our emotions than things I don't like because I was programmed to not like them. Let's take this from the perspective of a, an AI, right? If I programmed an AI to maximize the number of paper clips in the world, it would, in the same way that I, who was programmed to stay alive and breed, doesn't like it when people don't reciprocate my advances romantically or don't like it when I get physically injured, it would not like it when it couldn't make paperclips. Does that mean that not turning everything into paperclips is like an intrinsically negative thing? Um, of course not. Of course not. And I think when we're trying to judge whether or not positive emotions and negative emotions have value, we need to take the perspective of an entity that is above us to an extent, that does not suffer from positive and negative emotional states. And this is a very culturally imprinted perspective in us because typically in the Calvinist cultural tradition, positive and negative emotions are seen as both pretty untrustworthy, not meaningful, and definitely not things you should indulge in. I, I will agree that we are culturally predetermined to think this way. But I, I would argue that you need to think from an entity, the perspective of an entity that doesn't feel these things, because of course we're biased by the emotions that we feel. It would be ridiculous to ask a paperclip maximizing AI if it was wrong or evil to stop it from making paperclips and expect an unbiased response. And if I was an entity that didn't feel emotions and I was trying to pass judgment on whether emotions had value, I would probably pass judgment in the same way I did with that paperclip maximizing AI. Like, you were just programmed by serendipity to feel these things. In fact, I would argue the AI has more a right to those emotions than us because the AI would say, well, I was programmed intentionally to feel these things. You were just programmed by serendipity. Worse, in a hundred years, the AI would be able to say, and I can cure you of all those negative emotions using gene therapy. So what are you complaining about? So I, I just don't think that argument, and we'll get into this strain of the argument a bit more later, but now I want to get more into 
other anti-natalist arguments? Well, so there's one of the the big arguments that's made when they get a little bit more philosophical, I guess you would say, and this is still related to what you discussed earlier, is the Sisyphus thought experiment. Can you walk us through that thought experiment? Okay, so Sisyphus was cursed to roll a ball up a hill forever, only to have it roll back down after making it to the top. Most Mm -hmm. people would see that as a meaningless existence. Suppose someone reprograms Sisyphus' brain to enjoy the process and get a sense of deep fulfillment from rolling the ball up a hill. If you engaged him and tried to get him to stop, he wouldn't, telling you how wonderful rolling the ball does. Does his life have value? Because you, you programmed him for rolling the ball. And then you could say other things. Well, suppose humans were programmed to, you edited their brain and they really got deep satisfaction from eating feces, okay? Does eating feces now have positive value? And I think this argument is is really good, but not at establishing what the antinatalists think they're establishing. The very point of the Sisyphus thought experiment is that a positive emotional state can be dismissed as a thing of value because it can be induced by a meaningless activity. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that exact same argument works for negative emotional states. Mm-hmm. Negative emotional states can be dismissed as a thing of value because they can be caused by a, a meaningless activity. Like you could program somebody to, like they feel pain whenever they're not eating feces and therefore eating <laughs> Does that mean that the pain they feel is a, is a meaningful thing? And here's where they try to get out of this. They say, well, that doesn't really work because the thing could just not exist, which means that this isn't a point in question for us. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing there is they're cheating in the thought experiment. Specifically, the logic used in the experiment to dismiss positive emotions not having value is that positive emotions can be caused by a meaningless activity. If that's the reason used to dismiss the value of positive emotions, then you must hold that to negative emotions as well, even if you could use a little cheat to get out of it. The the logical structure still applies to the negative emotions. It, It then goes into our larger thing, which is I just see very little reason to believe that these emotions that were serendipitously selected for us in in our ancestors have any sort of real value. And this is from an atheistic perspective. But if I take a religious perspective, most religions believe that demons can use positive emotions to tempt you to do things. And demons can even use love to tempt you to do things. All emotions are often on the table when we're talking about the forces of evil in the universe. And so I think very few traditions outside of Buddhism, which, which you did talk about, would see negative emotions as like an intrinsic sign of negativity or positive emotions as an intrinsic sign of positivity. Instead, what a person should turn to is their own logic and disinterested logic where they can. Yeah. To summarize, the most common forms of negative utilitarianism, as used to argue for antinatalist positions, believe that positive emotions hold no value, but that negative emotions hold a negative value and that we should attempt to minimize negative emotions in the universe. Well, so Malcolm, why do antinatalists not want to kill themselves? Because it would seem to an outsider illogical that if if life is mostly suffering, you wouldn't just kill yourself because the good that you feel won't yeah. outweigh the suffering. And this is something that antinatalists argue really intensely. And I... I genuinely think that their arguments here are the weakest of all of their arguments. Hmm. What they'll say is, once you exist, you have a reason and interest to continue existing. This requires a very specific belief about how time works in order to be true. It requires human existence to be completely binary. Either a human exists fully, or the human doesn't exist at all. 
There is no potentiality of existence. To someone making this argument, new moments are like poof, created out of thin air like magic. The future does not exist in a meaningful way until it is actualized. Per our view, every decision you make determines which of countless potential futures exist. With every decision, you functionally erase whatever futures you did not choose. You are simultaneously responsible for everything you did and did not set in motion with your decisions. For example, if we have the capability to build a hospital and we choose to just sit around and play video games, we deny that hospital's existence and are morally culpable for the results of that decision. The hospital's moral value does not pop into existence only after the first stone is laid. What's really interesting about this argument that antinatalists use is it mirrors the belief of those who think it is sinful to spill seed or that life begins at conception. All potential life has value from our cultural perspective. It strikes us as bizarre that people would fixate on arbitrary thresholds like sperm or embryo or the moment the baby's head appears or the moment it's fully not myelinated. It's very interesting to me how the antinatalist perspective is very similar in how they view how life works and how time works to the pro-life perspective, which is very different from our perspective. When we use the term pro-life here and in other parts of this particular podcast, we're talking about a very narrow pro-life position, not the majority of the pro-life movement, which we might be considered on. Specifically, the belief that once a egg is fertilized, it is 100% a full human, and before it is fertilized, it has absolutely no rights at all. E.g., that you have no moral cost if right before a sperm hits an egg, you prevent it from fertilizing the egg, but you are killing a human if you squash the egg immediately after it's fertilized. Where to us, those two things would be almost exactly equal moral actions and almost exactly equally evil because both actions prevent a human who would have been born had you not intervened from being born. And as to why we hold this perspective, I, I can use a, a little thought experiment, right? If I put a claymore, which is a type of explosive, behind a door, and that claymore explodes when somebody opens it, uh, but that person hasn't been born yet, I'm not morally culpable for that? That seems really weird. That, that doesn't seem true to me. That, you know, a, if, if you do something that removes potential agency, and this is the thing, while we don't think that happiness or, or, or sadness really has value. We do think that agency has value. An individual's mm -hmm. choice to live has value. And when we remove that potential choice from an individual, we are okay with suicide. If a person with their own agency decides to kill themselves, that's one thing. If I make actions that choose to, so I could experience more hedonic pleasure within my life, not bring a potentially sentient being into this world who would have wanted to existed and would have loved their life and would have said, I really want to exist. I have robbed that being of agency just as much as if I put a claymore behind a door and they walk into it years later. You are morally culpable for things, even if they don't happen during your lifetime. So if that claymore exists and I die and it that door doesn't get opened by archaeologists until 500 years later, I'm still morally culpable for that action. Exactly. If, as an antinatalist, you do hold that the Claymore thought experiment is an immoral action, then you're forced to believe if action Z by person Y robs the agency of person X at future time T, it is morally wrong. With the caveat that this is not true if action Z was tied to the conception of person X. 
Hmm. I think most anti-natists actually wouldn't bite the bullet on the above thought experiment that I made. They'd hmm. say, actually, it is morally wrong to put a claymore behind a door that somebody who hasn't even been conceived yet would step through. And it would kill them instantly, painlessly. That's what we're assuming here. All you're robbing them of is agency, right? And the reason why this is important is, is because then why not kill any existing person if it's painless, right? Most antinatalists would say, well, we're not for killing people painlessly either. Surprise, killing people painlessly. Some do. There's the involuntary antinatalist movement, which in a way I respect because it's much more morally consistent. They believe in forcefully sterilizing people. It's- yeah, no, and if I were to fully act on my intuitions, that's what I would do. Like I would, yeah, I would, I would sterilize everyone. Just be like, end it. To clarify, act on your intuitions, not your logic. Yeah, act on, yeah, act on, act on my intuitions, not my logic. And my, my my non-consensual intuitions, by the way. Yeah, but, but the point we're making here is, okay, was it a Claymore thought experiment? So this Claymore is robbing someone of agency in the future, but they haven't been conceived yet. Mm -hmm. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, so robbing somebody who doesn't exist yet, hasn't been conceived yet of agency is wrong. But it's not wrong if the way I rob them of agency, the way I delete them from the timeline, is in some way tied to their conception. Like I'm killing their embryo or something like that. Then it's not wrong. It is wrong. It just seems like too really specific of a moral carve out. Um, But it may just be that culturally the way that Calvinists see time as predetermined is so ingrained in us that we can't imagine this sort of self-incarnating universe perspective where I think a lot more of the antinatalist perspective makes true where in no meaningful way does anything in the future exist. Well, hold on. I, I think it's it's actually pretty easy if, if we if we steel man this, but a person who is is getting blown up by a claymore as an adult versus the idea of a child or an embryo is capable of feeling a great deal more pain and suffering in the moment. In the thought experiment, no pain and suffering. They feel nothing. No one grieves for them. Otherwise, you're cheating in the thought uh, experiment. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah, there's there's no difference. Okay, so thinking more about this, what they might argue is that the moment an entity is born, now its agency matters. So even if you rob an entity that was born's agency in the future, well, now that's a moral wrong because they had agency rights at that point. But again, here you get into the problem of, of, of existence being binary. At what exact moment does an entity get these full agency rights? Is it the moment of conception? Is it the moment of the sperm and the egg? Is it the moment that they first could have been conceived? Is it the moment they're fully myelinated? What they would probably try to argue is that, well, once an entity has agency, then it has full rights to that agency. The problem, of course, being is that humans don't just pop, have agency out of nowhere. We gradually develop agency over time. And there's potentiality to that agency even beforehand. This argument would essentially mean that the amount of right that we had to live was proportional to how much agency we had in any moment. So like killing a baby, a toddler, or a mentally impaired person would be much less morally wrong than killing a adult, which just seems like a monstrous position to hold to me and very obviously wrong. Another really weird implication of holding to this position is that a sleeping person, well, they wouldn't have agency when they're asleep. So you could say there's, there's no moral wrong to killing them in their sleep. But then the person would say, yeah, but when they wake up a bit later, then they'll have agency. But you could also say that with a baby. When they get older a bit later, they'll have agency. 
So why does the sleeping person have so much more right to this agency? This entire moral position just feels really wrong and almost like it's specifically created to allow whatever form of life they're living today to be the type of life maximally deserving of self-determination and all other forms of life whether it's a baby or a future person or a mentally disabled person to have less inherent right to self-determination on the other hand if you take the position that after some threshold all entities have equal and full access to the right to self-determination it just seems very very arbitrary to grant an entity all of these rights out of nowhere. But, uh, of course, there is a workaround to this, which some negative utilitarians buy into, which is just to say that no entity ever has rights to its agency, and that it is never wrong if you can painlessly kill something without hurting others who have formed an attachment to it. So, at no point did anything ever get rights to its agency. That seems morally consistent to me. Well, and I think that this is, again, where there's anti-natalists that I respect and was like, don't the ones who are like, no, I don't think that we should painlessly kill everyone. I generally think that there really is no good logical way to get to that perspective. The ones who bite the bullet on that and say, yes, we should painlessly kill everyone. I'm like, from my cultural perspective, you are yeah, super evil and a threat to my family. But logically consistent. But logically consistent. And I can respect a person who's logically consistent when it causes them to be shamed by society. That's what we do. That's what this channel's all about. So in a way, I really respect that aspect of the anti-natalist movement even if one day they're gonna have to go. However, I would argue that the takeaway that they grab from suffering is a moral negative, but happiness isn't a moral positive. It is my mandate as a sentient entity to reduce suffering in the world. And then they say, okay, we need to painlessly delete all humans. That's probably the wrong takeaway because if there's even a chance that another species or uh, other life on earth could eventually evolve into a sentient entity and spread throughout the universe it would experience infinite more suffering than, than we could ever have so what you would really need to do is have kids and raise those kids in your race suffering cult go take to the stars and systematically eradicate all other sentient life from the universe and then you can safely stop your crusade because if another species ends up spreading in the universe just the amount of suffering that they will feel is so 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 much higher than anything tied to the triviality of earth it's not worth taking the risks that that could happen so you really don't get to delete the human species until you have surveyed the universe and ensured there is no other sentient life which you would then go kill and who knows maybe there's some uh, negative utilitarian species out there that explains the fermi paradox ensuring that sentient life never spreads that is i think the truly logical outcome of this anti-natalist position not we need to stop humans from having kids however that this hasn't been apparent to any anti-natalist group i think is telling about what is really motivating their philosophical position. Antinatalists also use the asymmetry argument, so which essentially is that preventing happiness by not creating life has no downside. You're only doing a good thing. Whereas preventing suffering by not creating life is good. So this arbitrarily divides people into existing and not existing, which again, yes. is not something that at least per our framework of reality, this is just not correct. But someone else's framework of understanding reality and time, this could be correct. 
let's spend a bit more time on this argument because I actually think it's the best of all of the arguments they make. Mm. So it goes like this. In condition A, baby is born. It is bad for someone who does exist to feel suffering. It is good for someone who does exist to feel happiness. That's what they would say about condition A where baby is born. In condition B, baby is not born. It is good to prevent someone from existing who would have felt suffering. It is not bad to prevent someone from existing who would have felt happiness. Mm -hmm. and, and again, this requires a binary existence of humanity for this to work, very similar to the way pro-lifers see humanity. A thought experiment that they may use that may, may click with people more is the island thought experiment. So if you go to an island, like you find an island that you didn't know exists before, and a population group that you didn't know exists before, and they are suffering, you would think, oh, well, the world's a worse place than I thought it was. If you go and you find that island and there's nobody on it, and, and because there's nobody on it, there's nobody feeling happiness, you don't then think, oh, the world is a less happy place than, than I assumed it was. But again, this assumes that existence is a binary thing. Suppose you found on that island archaeological evidence that a culture had existed there very, very recently. And they were a very happy culture. So happy, in fact, that they didn't believe in negative emotions at all. They just didn't feel negative emotions. And they had actually gone sterile due to a recent nuclear testing on like a nearby island and, and they went extinct as a people. So in this thought experiment, because of their unique culture, no negative emotions have been felt as a result of this sterilization event. This sterilization event was without any negative emotions, just a lack of positive emotions. I would view that as a bad thing. I would say that that nuclear testing was a bad thing. It, 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 and what we're seeing here is that there was potentiality to have people on that island in this scenario. In their scenario, they create an island in which there really was no potentiality that people existed on it. In our scenario, we're viewing humanity as a potentiality spectrum. And they become more human the closer they get to realizing their birth. For us, when it comes to a fetus existing or not, if I make a decision that prevents somebody else from creating a baby, right? Even if I make that decision before the sperm and the egg were individually created, I am just as morally culpable from my cultural perspective as I am if I terminate an embryo. Because in both scenarios, I prevented a human being who had agency from coming to exist. Yeah, you, you made a choice. And in the end, you know, 20 years from now, there's a person or there's not a person. It doesn't depend on when you made the choice. You made the choice, right? Yeah, it feels really weaselly to try to get out of that. Like, I can know that if somebody was like, okay, I'm going to ban IVF, then my kids, like kids who I've interacted with, they don't exist. And this actually matters when it comes to some of our beef with other conservative groups that think life begins at conception, because that means that they don't use IVF, which, for example, if we didn't use IVF, we wouldn't have kids. But even families who, who can broadly have kids, it would mean that many of them would have fewer kids because IVF increases a person's fertility with them. Yeah. So to us, those cultures are functionally killing kids. If you are having trouble understanding this concept, I can try to explain it in a different way. So from the perspective of somebody who believes life begins at conception, if a mugger came up and shot a woman who had just been inseminated, that mugger has killed two people. However, to us, if that mugger came up the day before that woman would have become inseminated and he kills that woman, he has still killed two people. And that is because we believe that God can see the future. And therefore, from God's perspective, that woman would have become inseminated had that external event not happened. 
Now, when we say God, we can mean in a theological context, or in our sense, we would mean like the laws of physics. The laws of physics were going to play out as the laws of physics were going to play out, so that woman was going to become inseminated. This view on time pushes back when moral responsibility for life begins, and in so doing, can make the actions of some other cultural groups, like convincing a woman who was planning to get IVF not to, the moral equivalent of talking somebody in to getting an abortion. Now, we take the cultural perspective of it's not our job to police what your culture does with its kids. And I think as soon as you do that, as soon as you assume that your culture is morally superior to other cultures and try to act on those other cultures, you enter the world of potential evil. And mm -hmm. I respect the spirit with which they believe what they believe. They're, mm -hmm. they're trying to do the same thing that we're trying to do. They just have a different belief about how human existence works. I just think it's a little squirrely to say, I'm not morally culpable for a decision that prevented a kid from being born just because the sperm and the egg that eventually created that kid didn't exist yet. Yeah. Uh, that, does that feel wrong to you? I, I, in this, in this, I have to respect the view that other people have. It's just that per our understanding of reality, it's not correct but I, I respect that other people have come to a logical conclusion there. Another implication of this position- Specifically the antinatalist asymmetry argument position. Just to help you understand why as outsiders we struggle with it is that a universe or a civilization of people who only feel positive emotions or neutral emotions. So it's, it's all just either neutral or plus. It has no moral weight or value that is better than a completely empty universe with no people, with no sentience, no sapience, no positive feelings at all, that it, they are exactly equal and that an antinatalist would be like, meh, like it could be either. Um, yeah, it seems insane to me that a, a universe teeming with happy, pluralistic life that thriving has exactly the same value as a completely cold and dead universe. That's the thing you have to accept with the asymmetry argument that I think just drains plausibility for me. It doesn't feel like a, a rational person would say that that was true unless they were coming from a, a cultural perspective that biases them in that direction. And I admit that our cultural perspective biases us in the other direction, or they personally were trying to justify a lifestyle that they were already living. Yeah, and I think that brings us to one of our biggest beefs with antinatalism in general, which is that this is a very intuitively driven philosophy. We alluded to the significant portion of the community that is pretty severely depressed, but there's also just like some both childhood based, but I would say also perfectly adult based intuitions that would lead someone to be antinatalist. And I, I personally really experienced this after becoming a mother. Like I cannot emotionally deal with suffering the way that I used to be able to deal with it or just kind of like write it off and ignore it, especially if if a child is suffering or I know a child has suffered or may suffer or is suffering, I, I will break into tears. I will not be able to do anything. And now even I'll look at a, a homeless person on the streets and I'll picture them as a child and, and I will start like, oh, yep. Okay. Um, I have to start thinking about other things. Yeah. Uh, like it is, it is deeply hard for me. And if I, if I get exposed to that too much and, and I think about the amount of suffering that takes place in the world, as you can see, this is a deeply intuitive, um, deep set, like gut reaction that's happening in me. I have no logical control over this. And this makes me come to a conclusion when I feel this suffering, when I feel this gut reaction, because humans are designed to be empathetic. 
one of my like frustrated throw up your hands can't deal with this pain I'm feeling right now reactions is I just wish humans didn't exist. I just wish that none of us existed to feel this suffering. This is too much. I can't deal with this right now. It is, it, it is that kind of conclusion. And, and I think that that's, that's, that's fine. That is, that is a, an expected intuitive reaction, but it also isn't driven by logic. And it also, it, it's not in alignment with, with my values, with my understanding of the, the universe. And it's also something like driven, like heated and driven in the moment that is not really going to lead to outcomes that I value. Well, yeah. So I think what you're saying here is you can emotionally understand their perspective. Yes. And even emotionally understanding it and understanding why it's appealing, you logically disagree with it. Yeah. I logically, yeah, I logically disagree with it. Cause of course, when I logically step back and I look at what we value and I also look at how we understand like humans to function, like there is a reason we, we feel both pain and pleasure for very clear reasons. Um, you know, just like AI has signals of, oh, you're, you're, you're doing something right or you're doing something wrong. We have signals that show that we're doing something right or we're doing something wrong. Those signals are key in our survival. And so all these things that we're feeling are just signals that are important in our survival. And I very much that humans exist. I love that sapience is out there in the universe. I think that we're doing amazing things and we need signals to be able to continue to do amazing things. And maybe someday AI will help us innovate other ways to experience these signals in a way that doesn't cause the same amount of visceral suffering, a meaningless suffering that I find to be incredibly difficult to deal with emotionally. But we're not even going to get to that point if we, if we extinguish ourselves. There, there's just so much lost potential and there's also so much lost like you were alluding to earlier, right? We have now more than ever within our grasp, the ability to shape and create a future of humanity that does not experience meaningless suffering. We can do that. And we, there could be billions more humans across the universe in, in, in however many hundreds or thousands of years. that are different from humans, superior mm-hmm. to humans, that, 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 that um, also feel like orders of magnitude more pleasure than we feel now. So if, if we want to be utility accountants, and you and I aren't, by the way. We wouldn't want this. I'm just saying from their perspective. Yeah, from, from their perspective, like, the, and, and, and we, would, we don't like the idea that, that you don't get any points for, like, positivity. But you could have the ratio of, of net positivity of humans experiencing pleasure and elation and curiosity and exploration and all these things versus suffering that has happened throughout all of human history by all the human population that is extant today until we you know, resolve this problem. It's just like such an obvious yes that we should push through. Well, right. when you're talking about these emotions that you felt as a mom and the way that your body hijacked you. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to remember that another way that our body hijacks us is when we are young and we are developing our identity. Unfortunately, this, this coincides when we develop our identity within our current culture. Mm-hmm. Our body is telling us to not have kids. It's telling us that kids are gross, especially the kids who we're going to interact with, which are the kids of other people. Biologically, when you are young, when you are developing your identity, most people think that they are not kid people. Because they work that into their identity during their teenage years, during their college years. And I've noticed that usually when people turn to antinatalism, it's during that period of their life when they are hugely biased emotionally towards not wanting kids. And then they, they drop the antinatalist mindset as they get older or more emotionally healthy, which is another thing that I've seen is I've seen antinatalists when they're no longer depressed, they stop being antinatalists. Mm-hmm. And I don't see that many other beliefs where people only really feel them when they're depressed. And it's why the antinatalist community 
is so adamant that they're actually happy people because this is just so transparent when you look at their threads as, as like a major problem in the community. And it's really sad, but part of me is it might be a good thing. If you have, because of cultural reasons, largely outside of your control, the erosion of our cultural institutions, the, the people who live in like harder cultures typically are more satisfied with their lives. And the people who turn to this are people who live in cultural situations where the erosion of cultural institutions has created an environment where due to no fault of their own, they are really despondent and they feel mm. like they have no hope for the future, often because they don't really have hope for the future. And if we rob them of this, if we say you, you don't get to believe this, right? Then they have to take more culpability for their actions. They need to yeah. take more culpability of the things they haven't done in life to try to get over the place that they're in right now. And so in a way, I feel like the, how logically sound antinatalism can sound can be a kindness to these people. And that we need to remember that, that for some people, even if they did tomorrow, like really realize a pronatalist perspective, they wouldn't be able to live it out. So why would I want to convince somebody like that? Like that, I, while I don't think suffering has value, I do think it has enough marginal value that I wouldn't want to just impose it on someone if it offered absolutely no utility to the world. So whatever, like I don't, and that's another thing about the antinatalist groups. I really get annoyed when people make like dumb arguments, like pronatalism is racist or pronatalism is like anti-environmentalist mm. or something like that. When people make antinatalism for this argument, I, I, I'm like, depending on your priors, it may be true. This may be, so if you take on the position that future humans don't matter at all, no human that could exist in the future matters, right. only current humans matter. Right. Um, which is weird. I don't understand how like logically that works, but okay, you've taken this position and you believe that the goal of life should be to create a net positive emotional output, which I think because that's what we're programmed to believe basically as humans, yeah. something that most people start their philosophical lives believing in middle school. And a lot of people grow out of that, but a lot of people don't. Grow out might be the wrong word. I, I think that there is reason to believe that's true but even if you believe that's true, you have to believe that humans won't advance in the future, or that humans won't be able to control this more. And I don't know. And even if you're- No, but, but it, I think it is logically consistent, like you say, to have a, a moral framework that only values what's happening now. Like that, I don't think that's, if that's what you choose, that's what you choose. Yeah. So the, the, the core framework of antinatalism that I just can never wrap my head around is one, the empty universe thing, that they think that that's exactly equally to, to a universe full of entities. And, and, and two, this sort of statement that you're forced to believe, which is if action Z by person Y robs the agency of person X at future time T, it is morally wrong with the caveat that this is not true if action Z was tied to the conception of person X. Hmm. But the great thing about antinatalists is they're somewhat self-defeating. They really only exist in cultural groups that have already an incredibly low fertility rate. They're generally, I, I think, almost absent from the, the cultural groups with high fertility rates right now. I have never heard of anyone from a cultural group with a high fertility rate being an antinatalist. So I think it's just sort of part of this ennui world of this decaying urban monoculture. Well, I actually, so I think that, that antinatalism and in general, to a great extent, modernity-driven demographic collapse is, is more a picture of what happens when the struggle is removed from people. When, yep. when the struggle is removed, 
it's a lot, I think, harder to find a reason to live. And for some people, a reason to live it goes all the way to antinatalism and deep depression. For other people, a reason to live is like a reason to have kids, a hope for the future, excitement for the future. At one point on, on Twitter, someone was like, oh, let's stop calling them developed countries. Let's call them developing countries always. You should never give up on, okay, we've made it. Like there's nothing else to do. There's nowhere else to go. There's no threat to, to overcome. There's no challenge. I think it really does come down to ennui. And I think that's a bigger problem because you 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 don't go. We we we've all we both traveled right to places mm -hmm. where poverty is a lot higher, and we both hung out with people who have come from much more deprived backgrounds who do not have anywhere close to the privileges of your average American, and even like your your impoverished average American, right? Antinatalism is not even not even there. Just. Like, oh, wait, no, no, no. But among our wealthy friends, antinatalism is actually a pretty it's pervasive. Yeah. So I'm just I'm just saying that, that more broadly, I think this is a, a picture of a society that it, it doesn't sound right to say this, but that does not have enough hardship. And, and that hardship if, in some ways makes it more obvious to people. Well, I think in cultures that embrace hardship, they know that suffering isn't an intrinsic negative. They see how it improves them. The culture's relation to suffering, I think, is really tied to how much it, it finds the ideas of antinatalism tantalizing. Suffering okay. is the emotion that motivates you to improve yourself. Um, mm. Contentment, that's the ultimate evil emotion. That's the emotion that encourages stasis. And in our world perspective, a world of, of personal stasis, a world where you accept that the iteration of you that exists now is, is elite, basically, and better than any iteration of you that could exist. It's, a, it's like a supremacist sort of ideological perspective. And it's the way we view humanity as well, like that we have kids so that they can be better than us. Um, but a final point I wanted to get to, which is like, when I think about how could I become an antinatalist, right? Mm -hmm. Like previous iteration of me, back when I did believe that emotions had value to people. And I think the trick that happened to me at that time of my life was that I expected profound things to feel profound. Mm. I, or to feel loud at least. But there was no reason for evolution to code profound things as feeling profound. You can hijack the profundity system by like group chanting. You can hijack the profundity system with hallucinogens. There's a lot of things you can do to create a false sense of profundity. People expect that the emotions we feel are going to point to some true underlying value, whether that's a positive or, or negative value. And humans never underwent evolutionary pressure to be able to search for true meaning in the universe. So none of our emotions should align with what true meaning looks like in the universe. Hmm. Um, and so we should expect, like when we're logically searching for things of value, for it to not actually feel like, oh, I feel this emotional when I come to the right answer. But the, the feeling that, that pain is bad I think that's a very easy thing you can come to when you're like, well, nothing really feels meaningfully profound, but pain does feel meaningfully bad. Therefore, as somebody who has had time to indulge in pain and has grown up in a culture that didn't give me a healthy way of relating to emotional pain, that just said emotional pain is a pure negative, and very few traditional cultures do that. 
Most traditional cultures see emotional pain, maybe not the way we do. Maybe it's not like something that motivates you to improve, but they, they definitely don't see it as like the core negative of the universe. It might be the way that God tests you. It might be like, there's all sorts of ways you can relate to pain. Yeah. You need to relate to pain in a purely and only negative context. Mm. And could I experience enough pain that I just wanted to die in the moment? Yes, but that's because I'm a disgusting meat bag <laughs> involved and I'm weak and I'm wretched and I'm fallen. And by that, what I mean from a, an atheistic perspective is humans, our biology is not optimized around what we should want. Like there was no reason for it to be optimized around what we should want. So I am going to succumb to that just as much as anyone else. Like I drink beer. I know that provides me with no real long-term positive, but I do it because I am wretched and fallen. And that's part of, of, of being human is understanding these these flaws in who we are like that we feel pain for things that are pointless and understanding that that's just part of the human condition but that we can work through that potentially and we can work to improve that not just for ourselves but for everyone i don't know if you have closing thoughts i'm glad we're alive i'm glad our kids are alive we're a problem for antinatalists dear antinatalists i'm sorry if we missed anything leave a comment. We genuinely want to understand the argument as well as we can, especially the, the logically founded versions of it. Uh, but, yeah. Or if there's an argument for it that we didn't include, these are the arguments yeah. that we found most convincing. Yes. Um, and again, I think it's, it's one of those things where I can't say they're wrong. It's just a nature of perspective. In the same way that I, I would not say that people who believe that life begins at the conception or at the level of a sperm are wrong. I just have a different perspective than them, but I don't mm -hmm. think their perspective is like intrinsically evil, even though it leads to evil actions from my cultural perspectives, which is killing babies or, or per, from their perspective, preventing babies who otherwise would have existed had different choices been made than the choices that their culture condones for them. But I'm okay with that. I'm okay with living in a multicultural ecosystem. So long as people don't mess with my culture, as soon as we think that, well, okay, we have right to your body, your culture. That's where I'm like, okay, now those are, those are fine words. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we will go celebrate our pronatalism by picking up our kids now and giving them big hugs and hoping the best for them. And I'm I looking can't forward imagine to a world which they didn't exist. I can't imagine that would be a better world knowing them and having met them. What antinatalism means is if I had adopted that mindset when I was younger, they, they wouldn't have been given the choice to continue existing. Oh my gosh. And just imagining the way they don't, they don't run, they bounce, you know, they, oh, the sparkles in their eyes. Yeah, I, I, I know that they want to exist. <laughs> if they don't want to exist, killing themselves is always a choice. Our culture does not have a real negative opinion of suicide. Um, but it, it is, it is, it is not a choice to use the fact that you want to commit suicide to rob the agency of another potential person who could have been born in your place, who would have loved their life. That's At the end of the day, this is a choice you have to make for yourself and not for other people, because when you rob other people of agency, that's the truest of all evils. And that's yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I guess that, that kind of sums it up. Is is we think you have every right to end your life for our moral framework, yeah. but you should never rob that of someone else. In the end, so much of what we come down to is sovereignty, personal sovereignty, and freedom of choice. And that is, you know, up to each person to decide what to do with themselves. In each culture, I think it gets trickier when you're talking about kids. But I think the only real safe way like intergenerationally to assure that 
groups don't come to believe that other groups are like intrinsically worse than them and that they have Kirk launched to do whatever they want. Because that's what happened with the residential school program in Canada. They said, well, these natives don't know how to raise their kids correctly, the European way, the, the, you know, the modern way. So we're going to take their kids from them and erase their culture because we're better. And they genuinely believe that they genuinely believed they were helping people. And when you begin to believe that your culture is naturally superior to other because of things they're doing to their kids or whatever, then it can lead to really, really evil action really, really quickly. And it can feel really, really good and righteous in the moment. Yeah. And I try to learn from history what not to do. And, and one of the things is passing judgment on other cultures or other groups, especially when they have belief systems that I see as logically, logically consistent. Yeah. Well, okay. Heavy conversation, but good. Come give me a hug. Let's get our kids. I love you, Malcolm.